1: because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, hello, my friend. It's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. I just happened to be back in Denver this week because we are expecting a major snowstorm called Blizzard. So I decided I needed to uh, be home to shovel the driveway and make sure that the dog doesn't get lost in the three feet of snow we're supposed to get. But I know you're back in Boston suffering because uh, you've been sitting on the beach forever drinking little drinks with umbrellas in it so how are you doing
0: i'm doing all right it's a little chilly here but it hasn't snowed lately so we i'm happy for that but i have been looking at the flight schedules to florida
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah does that just warm you up just looking at those schedules john
0: <laughs> uh no it just increases my desire to go south We have a very interesting show today, but before we get going, I'd like to remind everybody that this podcast is being brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, as well as Avempco Insurance. So if you have an airplane that needs insurance, or if you're up for renewal, give Avempco a call at 888-879-0389, and if you mention flight safety detectives, you'll get a 5% discount which is not too shabby.
1: Nope. We always like a discount.
0: Yep. And speaking of insurance, Greg, when do you get your new airplane?
1: I'll tell you, John, it's frustrating because uh, trying to get onto the East Coast and get the work done in between our work schedule. I mean, you know, you've got me working on a project right now. I was expecting to take some time. You've got me tied up. So I'm hoping that in the next two weeks, because uh, I've got a lot of travel to the East Coast, so I'm hoping in the next two weeks I'm finally going to get that beast home. So as soon as I do, it'll be Avemco Insurance that'll be handling the coverage. So I'm looking forward to that, and I do appreciate Avemco as our sponsor. I've always had good rapport and working relationship with them on my other airplanes. So I'm glad they are a sponsor of uh, Flight Safety Detectives.
0: All right. So this week, we're doing something a little different. So we got an interesting email from a young lady, and uh, we decided to call her up just a few minutes ago and ask her to join the show, and we'll address her questions on the show. So I'd like to introduce the audience to Amy.
2: Hello. Hey, Amy. Welcome, Amy. Hi there. Thanks for having me.
0: Welcome. Thank you for listening to uh, to our show and having kind words to say about it that puts you in a minority
2: <laughs> oh, you deserve it you really do deserve it it's, it's a great show
1: well we we try to keep it entertaining and educational all at the same time you know i'm the education john's the entertainer we, uh, <laughs> we, we do appreciate our listeners for sure but you uh you sent a great email i was actually very impressed by the fact that uh, you are an aviation nerd, but not an aviator. But you did have a great discussion in the email regarding CRM, crew resource management. It's called by a variety of different names, depending on airlines or organizations that use it, leadership resource management, crew resource management. But you're in the uh, health insurance industry, and you were asking us about CRM and, and how that works in different industries. Can you just expound on uh, on your email and, and then John and I will try to answer your questions on the air. If not, we'll make something up.
2: <laughs> well, sure, sure. It, it is something that interests me. Like I mentioned, I'm in the health insurance industry. I've been here 19 years. 16 of that, I've been in quality, internal quality. I know some people might think, "Gosh, there's no quality in my health insurance," but there is. We actually have people behind the scenes who look to make sure things go according to rules and guidelines and contracts and all those things. And that's been in my job for a long time. So when I get the chance to see how other industries manage quality and have checks in place to make sure that things are safe and on time and high quality. That's just fascinating to me. I get so excited hearing about it that I get all out of breath. You know, I'm like, oh, what's your process for that? So, just as, like you mentioned, I have a a fascination with aviation and and the process of crew resource management. On paper, when it's written out, it just sounds so beautiful and organized. Like, you know, there's this this crew and their team, and everyone knows what they're going to do, and they just say it, and things just happen, and it's perfect. And then you see things. That don't go perfectly. And you're like, okay, well, where was the breakdown? So it's it's fascinating to me to think about how that can be applied across other industries as well.
0: Well, actually, there's been an attempt by a number of folks. I know one particular individual left Boeing from the flight side and started a business putting CRM programs into hospitals. And United Airlines, at one point in time, had a maintenance resource management program for its mechanics. It actually repackaged it and was selling that program to hospitals. So there has been some cross-pollinization, not to a large degree, but to a noticeable degree. And one of the things that I do, Amy, is one of my closest
1: friends who we've had on the show is my dentist, but he's also a research scientist. But in his dental office, he uses the principles of CRM. He's got the seven young ladies that work for him in a variety of different roles from receptionist to dental assistants and hygienist and that kind of thing. And one of the things that he has done is basically train them just to the principles of CRM that, hey, look, my name is on the door, but that doesn't mean that I can't screw something up. And he empowers them to participate and speak up without any kind of punitive action against them or belittlement. If they see something, basically it's the adage of see something, say something. And and he's empowered them to do that, even as novices, because he likes to get these hygienists and these future dentists out of the dental school that he went to in Maryland. And they turned out to be great employees, great assistants, And they've asked questions at times where, like, Dr. K, what are you doing? Or we don't normally do that first. And it makes him stop and pause because, again, kind of like in the cockpit, you know, you got the captain and the first officer. You've been doing the same thing over and over and over again. There are times when you just check out, you're zoned out because you got other things going on in your mind and, you know, you forget an item on a checklist or, you know, you forget to talk to ATC after they've called you three times because you just tune them out. So, the principles of CRM are very adaptable, really, to any industry. I go, I do a lot of presentations to the medical community, to some major pharmaceutical companies. One, they want to know how we do acts investigation because we get into root cause analysis and really get into the detail but then we translate that after we've identified the facts conditions and circumstances that if there's a breakdown in communication that's a CRM issue if there is a misinformation or miscommunication or it's a misinterpretation of something all of that is a principle of CRM and making sure that if we're doing something collective that's going to take you and I to make it happen And we both have to be on the same page. And that's why it's really singing. (laughs) We always make fun of the fact that, yeah, CRM training, it's learning how to sing Kumbaya together instead of individually. So that's really what it's all about. And it's broken down a lot of barriers because, of course, we've had societal barriers for a long time. They still have them in Asia and other parts of the world where you don't challenge authority. And I've done accidents, and John's done accidents. I did uh, 747, where the first officer, young kid, 23 years old, dutifully sat there while the captain flew the airplane into the side of a mountain six miles short of the runway. Mm -hmm. He knew what was going on, but because of that authority figure, that seniority, he wasn't going to challenge the captain. And that's really what CRM has done, is broken down those barriers to allow Free flow of information communication, and if necessary, a junior officer, if you will, taking command of the aircraft because he's not or she's not comfortable with what's going on.
2: I can see how just an evolution a generation or two we've gone from you know the the captain is god and and nobody's going to challenge him, and now it's like you know, I want your input I, we're a team, I value your experience and your training. Let's work together. we got a situation to take care of. And, and that's happened in so short an amount of time, really. Of course, the industry as a whole is not that old. But it's interesting to see how it's gone along and there's been a process to it. Good morning. You're on the ground, Canadian 920. We're just coming up to Alpha, Juliet. A
0: 920,
2: runway 248 taxi. I'm also curious to know, to say everybody's old, but if someone has been in the industry for a long time before this being the norm, has there been pushback to things like CRM and and this kind of training? You know, what are there people who say, well, yeah, but if I'm experienced, why do I have to go through a checklist and don't know all these things? What what do you say to that kind of an attitude?
1: Well, I I look at it with John. I call it the Pac-Man Call of Duty. John is Pac-Man. He is so old. He's, you know, the only thing older than John (laughs) is dirt. You know, I'm more of the Call of Duty, more of the updated guy. But that's the kind of environment where you do have that older, set in my ways kind of of attitude. And years ago, when the 747-400 was coming into service, I went through the training class for brand-new captains and first officers on the 747-400 at a major airline. And a lot of the captains were coming off what's termed the generic whale. That was the older version of the 747 and coming into this new generation of airplane. The first officers, on the other hand, were coming off of the 757, and 767, which had glass cockpit automation that was similar to what they were going to be moving into. And there was that pushback. There was that resistance for the older guys to learn all this automation because they had built a career hand flying the airplane pretty much all the time. And now they were going to have to give up that skill and allow the automation and, you know, become a button pusher to fly the airplane. And there was that resistance, but as they understood workloads, as they understood the fact that the airplane, in some respects, can fly better than the human, that eventually, I won't say that it was ever eliminated, but that transition color went from black and white to gray, where they started to understand that. And now as we have this younger generation or generations that are moving to the left seat. A lot of that is gone, and they've just been raised in the environment of, we're going to work together. We make collective decisions as a crew. It's not, I make the decision, you sit there, shut up, and don't touch anything until I tell you. A lot of that is gone in a lot of the professional ranks, but it does still exist. And John and I had a discussion about this not too long ago, because we don't look at societal culture as an influence here in the united states we're very flexible and adaptable and we've been able to break that barrier down and when i'm over in asia even to this day societal culture that seniority that authority authority figure that kind of culture even though these pilots go through similar crm training when they get back in the environment of uh, the captain he is God in that cockpit and it's very difficult for these junior first officers to break that barrier down because uh, of the the environment that they've been raised in.
0: You know, and that extends down into the ranks of dispatchers and mechanics as well, where the older gray hairs take control and they don't listen to the younger guys. And that has led to problems in those ranks as well along the same lines. The aviation industry has been working on CRM since the 80s. Uh, You know, in 1978 or 79, there was a plane crash, a United Airlines crash in Portland, Oregon, that finally woke the industry up to those problems because the captain was flying the airplane and he ignored both the first officer and the flight engineer of the condition of the airplane. He was running out of fuel. And they said it to him, I think it was three times, and he acknowledged it and did nothing about it. And just on a, a final approach to the airport, I mean, just ready to, to, I think it was within a mile or two of the airport, he ran out of gas and crashed into the trees and killed the three in the cockpit and about 23 people I think perished. But because there was no fuel in the airplane, there was no fire and that saved everybody else on the airplane. And that was the wake up call for the industry.
1: And it has evolved and we've been very fortunate that it has evolved to the extent because then you start looking at accidents like United 232, where you needed to have the crew working as one to get the aircraft down successfully. And even though there were fatalities in that accident, that was a successful outcome given the circumstances, but that crew worked very well together. In order for that outcome to be as good as it was. So we've evolved, but again, you know, a lot of societal culture has influence in in the way things are done. And we still see that stigma with women in the cockpit, you know, just because we haven't broken those barriers down completely. And we've done a good job here in the States. But again, other parts of the world, they're still working on that. And that's why when you break down CRM, as you talked about it in your email, Amy, in going into an operating room where you have the surgeon who has the hands of God, he puts them in someone's chest to save their life by giving them a heart transplant or whatever. That's great. They have that skill. They have that talent. But without those other folks in that operating room, They are just one of us. They're just another person. It takes a team to be successful with a heart transplant or anything else. And it is trying to break down those barriers. And that is those ego barriers, those attitude barriers that, hey, look, we're all in this together. We all have a piece of the action, if you will. And without you doing your job at 150% and me doing mine at 150% and John doing his at 150%, the outcome might not be successful. And that's why it's so important that everybody is empowered to participate and nobody is stuck in a corner. And You're only going to talk when I point to you and things like that.
2: Well, do you have a concern as... These people that have all the experience are retiring or moving into other roles, you know, more senior positions. And the people that, like you said, have come up with all these, you know, teamwork environments. I know that on a recent episode, um, you had uh, Mr. Bob Jenkins, I believe, and he had a a line where he said that they know which button to push, but they don't know what the button does. And is that because we've we've trained on so many checklists and? flow charts that they know the process, but if something doesn't go according to the process, do they know what to do? Does that affect how your crew resource management works if everybody's kind of at the same experience level?
1: Automation does that. It degrades the skills. The industry knows it. John and I had a conversation with a couple of pilots in previous shows where we've talked about how much the airlines allow a pilot to hand fly the aircraft just to maintain those tactile skills just because, you know, you put the autopilot on at 500 feet, the automation is flying the airplane. And next thing you know, instead of being ahead of the airplane, which we train and as a flight instructor, you're always training the student. You got to be four steps ahead of the airplane all the time and anticipate what's going to happen so that you're not blindsided or startled by something. But automation, and there's been a lot of literature, historical information written about what we call children of the magenta line or the automation complacency, and we have to keep people engaged. So it's not really an old person versus a young person because it can happen across the board, but you do have to maintain a high level of proficiency in these automated complex automated aircraft because when something does happen there's only so much troubleshooting you're going to do but then you have to go back to what you know best and that is flying what is called raw data you turn off all the automation you use the the basic instruments to fly the aircraft you actually hand fly the airplane And figure out what's going on and what the best course of action is, because there are going to be circumstances. You look at Miracle on the Hudson, you have Sullenberger and Jeff Skiles who were hand flying that airplane to a landing in the in the river. You look at Al Haynes and crew, they were doing what they could to use differential thrust. To get the airplane, that DC-10 down in relatively one piece. There's no automated system that was going to be able to do that. So what we don't want to do is create a generation of pilots that can't think outside the box or beyond a checklist or beyond the button push. Because, you know, if something does happen, let's say you have electrical failure and all of that pretty stuff goes dark, you got to fly the airplane.
0: That poses particular problems in the, in the medical community, as I know it, because where we have broken down the guard syndrome with pilots through training over and over again, re- repetitive. You have your own guard and the doctors, and since they're in many, many hospitals, they're not employed by the hospital. They're essentially independent contractors, and that makes it more difficult to get them on board with programs like this. I've been told by those people, in particular the, the one from Boeing that started this company, that the doctors were his biggest problem getting his programs implemented. The nurses loved it. They recognized it as being something that could help them, but it was the doctors that were reluctant to get on board. Not across the board, but a high percentage, too high to make the program effective. So it's uh, in the medical community, there's a steep learning curve yet to come. I thought that the place to be implementing CRM processes, thought processes, were in medical school, but I don't know if anybody's had any traction trying to get that done.
1: And as a flight instructor, you know, I've always preached that We tend to think about crew resource management when pilots get into a crew environment. As a solo pilot or single pilot, you are your own resource. You have to do multiple things. And we have a, a term for that called single pilot resource management because you have to fly the airplane talk on the radio if you got passengers you got to be the flight attendant you're doing a variety of different things and you got to be able to manage your time and your talent to operate the aircraft safely and so a lot of times you don't get into this crew environment until of course you're flying either professionally or an aircraft that requires two pilots but I think that at least the basis for CRM, I believe, starts on the first day of flight training for a student pilot. Because as a flight instructor, I have to be an effective communicator. I have to be a leader. I have to demonstrate mentorship. I have to be able to encourage and empower and correct without having some sort of punitive type attitude. But I've got to be an effective communicator. We have to work together because it is a crew environment as an instructor and a student to an extent and i think the principles start just kind of like what john is saying you know starting in medical school where you start to learn these principles to be an effective practitioner or doctor or whatever industry you're in where you know that it's going to take a team effort to accomplish the mission successfully while yes that you are the the primary if you are the surgeon but again, like I said, without that supporting cast, you're not going to be successful.
2: That's true. It's very fascinating. I, I love to see the crossover. You know, I imagine that a lot of your listeners are like me that they may not be directly involved in the business of flying or they have an interest in it, but in their own perspective, so we've got quality methods that we have to follow. And it's just really interesting to see the different ways that an industry might approach it whether they're trying to improve factory production or maybe a labor relations. You know, if the people on the floor don't feel like the people in the office are listening to them, you know, there's a breakdown in quality and and communication there. And it's just really interesting. One of my brothers is in quality in a completely different industry. So we'll have the most fascinating discussions on, you know, what his company does and what my company does. And it's just really interesting to see how having a system in place and having all of that training before a situation happens, you know, so that you're you're proactive and not reactive. You use some some buzzwords. I know a lot of people love love corporate buzzwords, but to, to think that your plan is in place and everyone knows that plan, or at least has been trained on on having a plan. Okay, so now something happens. How are we gonna react? It takes some of that stress out of the situation from the outset just because everybody's on the same level.
0: Well, Amy, you bring up an interesting point. You know, we've been talking about cockpit resource management, the communications between the pilots, but today the aviation industry has moved beyond that, and we have moving towards a system called safety management systems, which is really the backbone of that system is communications across company lines. I don't like the name SMS, safety management systems, because it should just be a management system. It starts from the top. It empowers everybody to raise issues and actually even to stop a flight activity if they don't feel comfortable with it. But it's a whole program of safety management, and it's based around thorough communications across all party lines. You know, in aviation, we've long had silos. Pilots talk to pilots. Mechanics talk to mechanics. The cross communications between pilots and mechanics, oftentimes it's limited to what's in the logbook and have the same problems with dispatchers, with the guys that load the airplane in the airline environment. All those people felt like they were never communicated with. They were never talked to, and if they raise any issues, it goes nowhere. But they're ignored. So what safety management systems mandate is when you put them in place that all those communications get reduced to writing, or at least called in on a phone, emailed in, anonymously reported, and they get addressed, and it's feedback. So it's a, it's a wonderful program t- to make everybody feel part of the, the operation, not just whatever the pilot said goes.
1: You know, when you look at, and again, when you dissect CRM or even an SMS, the principles of SMS, every person in some way, shape, or form is practicing those every single day you take your own family for existence uh, for for example I mean you have to be an effective communicator with your husband your kids or whatever in order to get the message across especially if you're trying to teach a lesson to a child and things like that you have to be an effective communicator so you're practicing those CRM principles you're showing leadership you're showing okay if you've done something wrong okay yes there is a consequence to be paid but Here's the learning lesson from all of that. Here's the mentorship from all of that. And so we've just applied it to a different form. And in this case, it's the cockpit. And then the principles, of course, for an SMS program like John is talking about. Yeah, you take the word safety out of it and it's a management system. You manage your household that way. You manage your life to an extent, using the principles of a management system where you identify things that have an adverse effect and you're trying to correct them before they become something serious or detrimental. And so we try to emphasize that these principles should never be a job. That is, CRM should never be a job or SMS should never be a job. I always preach it. I believe it. That safety has to be a core value in you because if it's a job then you're tending not to do it it becomes a burden it's a pain i don't want to do it i don't want to turn it on today i've got other things to do versus if it's a natural core value then you'll instantaneously recognize the hazard that makes things unsafe i mean i live it every day john lives it every day we both talk about it every day And that's why if you take on these principles and you make them part of your core values, then they're no longer a job. They're no longer a burden. They're just natural. And you'll identify things and be able to set up basically life in a very simplistic way without feeling like it's a lot of work. And that's what we're trying to break down because people see this, especially in aviation. You want me to do all of this stuff? That's going to take money. That's going to take manpower. That's going to do this. It's going to do that. I'm going to have to change this. All of a sudden, they turn you off because they have a negative attitude. And what we're trying to do is emphasize the positive, and that's what we do through CRM and SMS. Well, I just uh, I know that John and I have gone on and on we hope that we answered uh, some of your questions that you posed in your email and of course coming on the show with us which we do appreciate and I think John we got to make this kind of a regular thing because I enjoy talking to people
0: other than you yeah and I agree and Amy one of the flip sides of, of volunteering to come on the show you are now what we call a friend of flight safety detectives
2: oh good yay <laughs>
0: We may be getting in contact with you again to be part of another show.
2: Well, I would I would love it. This is, you know, you get to the end of the day and you're worn out and tired. And then you talk about something that, that is interesting to you. And you're just almost just twitchy with excitement because it's so interesting. And now I'm all hyped up. What am I going to do? Now I've got to go find something to clean or, or cook some <laughs> dinner or something, you know. But uh, it, it's been it. a pleasure. I really appreciate your time.
1: No, we thank you for uh, coming on the show. And if you'll do us a favor, just drop us your address, your sure. email address on an email because we'd like to send you something.
2: Well, cool. I appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Well, again, thank you very much, Amy, for uh, being our beta person to, uh, to <laughs> test our our new little program inclusion. So uh, we're looking forward to doing this again. And if you ever have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out. You have our direct line now to uh, to email and cell phones. So definitely, if you ever need anything, please don't hesitate to reach out to either myself or John.
2: I appreciate it. Thank you. Nice talking to you both.
1: Okay.
0: Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Rudder travel pitch field. Nav exterior light. Servo control. Engine start panel. Ranking aboard. Fire handle. Seatbelt minimum. Okay, Greg. Have you been following the email trail lately about the Malaysian uh, 370, the flight that disappeared?
1: Yes. Not only have we gotten a lot of emails to the show about MH370 since this is the seven year anniversary. Of course, you know, all of the uh, social media blogs and everything else have been lighting up with, again, more conspiracy theories, pet theories, and you know, where's this aircraft and, and things like that. And you and I have an acquaintance who has been writing diatribes. Of information about MH370, some of the conspiracy behind it, some of the fact behind some of the investigative actions that took place by various countries. And it's made for not only entertainment, there's some definitely creative thinking, John,
0: out there. Oh, there certainly is. I mean, we got to meet with one of the Australians that was just the person out front for a group of pilots from. Uh, Australia and, and uh, Asia, East Asia and Central Asia, and they have been for a long time saying that the search is in the wrong area, and they actually actually came up through simulation in a, a flight simulator, a different location that the Australian and Malaysian governments refused to investigate. They also alleged that on day four of, of this investigation, meaning almost the very beginning, the Malaysian government had informed the Australian government that this was a murder-suicide on part of the pilot. And I know you picked that up early. I picked it up early. I picked it up,
1: yeah, day two or day three. You you and I were both on TV saying it's obvious what this is.
0: Yep. So it's interesting. And, and just within the last few days, another group of scientists using analysis of drift data, because what most people don't know is there's been multiple deposits of debris off the Australian coast in the general area along this flight line that we've been searching on and dropping these pieces into the ocean like the pieces that they found off the coast of Africa in studying where they're going. And these folks have done that now for, for the last couple of years and they have a different model that clearly is very similar to the one done by the pilots that say that we're working... working We have looked in the wrong area of this. And for whatever reason, the governments have have not pursued it, but the pressure, I think, is growing on them to get back in the water and see if they can find this airplane.
1: And again, you know, John, early on when you had all of these, and I use this as a loving term, all these rocket scientists who were doing trajectory studies and everything else, And they were talking about the fact that this aircraft went blasting into the water at Mach 4. I mean, some ridiculous speed. What they don't understand is we've seen that already. We saw it with Air France 447, high-speed impact with water. Water doesn't compress. It's worse than hitting concrete. It'll break that airplane into billions of little pieces. And we saw that with Air France 447 because there was a 70-mile debris trail all over the ocean we didn't see any kind of debris trail with this aircraft. And, and even if you know it took a month or two months, that debris is still going to basically stay together in clumps where it would have become very obvious. So I've always postulated that the aircraft, yes, there are some frangible things that did come off that aircraft during its touchdown in the water. But it was shallow enough where the airplane stayed together. The contents didn't spill out. The aircraft didn't come apart. We don't have a big floatsome debris trail, and that that airplane fluid dynamics. That airplane, if it still had the wings and the tail on it, is going to fly through twenty-two thousand feet of water just like it does through twenty-two thousand feet of air. And who knows where it has flown over that distance? And then on top of it, the topography in that part of the ocean is kind of like our rocky mountains i mean it is very mountainous cavernous and if the aircraft went into it especially on the side all the best side scan sonar and everything else that they've been using as assets may not pick it up and then on on top of all of that there's better than two thousand feet of silt on the bottom of that part of the ocean so if the airplane settled into the silt it's going to settle pretty damn deep so there's a lot of things against finding the aircraft. It took us 112 years to find the Titanic, so who knows? Maybe there'll be some technology that will find this airplane.
0: I'm sure there will be eventually, and the issue will long be gone, and those people that wanted to keep the information suppressed will have won. But maybe, just maybe, we'll get lucky if the search starts up and they start getting serious about it. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see, but it's it certainly opened up a lot of eyes on what has occurred inside Australia, and maybe even given the Australian government a bit of a black eye for participating in some sort of a cover-up, if that's true. I always want to preface that, if it's true, because I don't have any independent knowledge that they covered it up, but there's enough people out there talking about what occurred to make me pause about believing it's all accurate.
1: I know that you and I have talked about having our acquaintance on the show because he has the firsthand knowledge. He's written just numbers of, of articles, and we've gotten a lot of the emails giving us very specific detail. And I think that having him on the show lets him answer the questions because he's got firsthand knowledge. And I think coming from a guy like him who has spent basically the last seven years researching and diving into all these issues. I think the audience would definitely benefit from hearing other perspectives, and a lot of it, as as he has told us, is based on fact. They have ferreted out and then validated this information. This isn't speculation. A lot of the the documents they received, a lot of the information that they've developed is factual information.
0: Yeah, including the fact that's been leaking around that this flight path was found on the captain's. Home computer, so that's sort of a really uh, a gun right to him. Arrow pointed right at him. Since he had the flight path, he he uh, explored all the radar coverage. He knew where he could had to duck down low to avoid the radar coverage. I mean, why would he have that on his home computer?
1: Yep, and he had a pretty elaborate. He had a pretty elaborate simulator in his living room too. All of us that saw those pictures of his his uh mock up simulator. I mean, I'd die for something like that. That was awesome.
0: Yeah, he spent a lot of money on that setup. It really was quite a setup. So, I don't know if we'll if we'll ever know what was going on in his mind, but it certainly wasn't normal. So there was something influencing him. Him.
1: And I know, John, that you know, anytime we talk about accidents, and you and I have been involved in the investigation of accidents, we too have been um, invited to anniversaries of uh, of the accident date you and i spent some time with uh, the value jet families i spent a number of times with uh, the families of american eagle 4184 at roselawn indiana and it is always i feel you know from an emotional standpoint i feel for these people because they are still desperate for answers you and i have tried to give the value jet folks those answers and it's never enough. And I can't even begin to imagine you know, living with that every single day, that nagging question that may still be lingering that none of us can give that satisfactory answer to. But the folks that even since you and I weren't intimately involved with MH370, those families are still just torn apart, especially because they don't have anything of a remembrance of their loved one. And and that's what makes it very difficult in an accident like this, is that at least if they had some, not necessarily answers, but the fact that they could give their loved one that, that proper respect and burial and know that that part of their story has come to a proper end. They don't know what the proper end is, with MH370.
0: Yes. And I don't think people outside of the families or, or folks like you and I that meet with the families can appreciate the pain that they're going through. It's pretty bad. It's pretty heart-wrenching. So I will always do whatever I can to help console family members, help give them the information they may need to to uh, put their minds at ease.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, my friend, I know that we have been talking for a little while, and we, again, appreciate Amy coming on the show and sharing her thoughts about CRM and questions. And I really like that, John. I I think that we should start picking emails of people because we do get some very lengthy discussion emails, and it takes us a long time. I'd rather just talk to them on the phone and give them the answers or talk to them on the show than try and sit down and craft a a proper response to them. And I think maybe this is the way to do it, that we invite them on the show, we bring up their subject, let them ask us questions, and we talk about it.
0: I agree. I like doing that a lot. So I'll start looking through our emails and, and uh, see if there's another one in there. I know there's another one in there.
1: There's a bunch of them in there. <laughs> I just I just read a bunch of them, so I know they're in there.
0: Yeah, we, we, we have been generating a lot of email traffic back to us, which is good. Because, you know, oftentimes I'm the one that has to go through the, the documents and pull out what we're going to talk about. And, boy, sometimes you sit there looking at the computer screen, wondering what you're going to punch in to do a search with. Because if you just get a mental block because there is so much to talk about. And when you have that much, you lose your mind in the computer.
1: Yeah. Well, we, again, appreciate all of our listeners. And we encourage you to drop us an email at flight safety detectives with an S at gmail.com. You heard one of the listeners who wrote us a a very long and very lengthy discussion about CRM asking questions. And so we decided that we've now found a new way to respond. So we encourage you all to, uh, to write us an email ask questions let's talk about things you want further clarification on things john and i have talked about accidents that we've dissected on the show or something that's maybe in the future as far as dissecting let's do it so again we appreciate all the emails that we do get and we definitely appreciate our sponsors who allow us to have this show and communicate with our listeners in a variety of different ways
0: Yes. So remember, everybody, if you need insurance coming up for renewal, buying an airplane, whatever the reason, if you're a flight instructor, need insurance. If you don't own an airplane and you're renting them, they even have insurance for rental, for pilots that are renting airplanes to protect them from problems with the rental or, or with their flying skills. So if you do need it, give a Vemco a call, you know, 888 888- Eight seven nine zero three eight nine. It is a five percent discount, just for mentioning. Flight safety detectives, with all the cost of aviation, five percent can go a long way.
1: Yep, especially right now, given uh, with all of the financial hardships, and I will call it a hardship because even if uh, you still have a job and you're making income and supporting an airplane and a family, it becomes a bit of a hardship because. This last year has been trying for all of us, so every little bit helps in trying to to save cash. So we do definitely appreciate our sponsors. Well, John, I know that uh, I'm going to be getting ready for a snowstorm. By the time this show airs, hopefully I'll have dug us out and the snow will be melted. But in the meantime, I will sit here and think about all of the skills that I have in pushing a shovel
0: <laughs> Ben they had done that, and hope I never have to do it again <laughs> well that's my that's my aerobic
1: exercise, John is moving three feet of snow, so
0: I'll let arm action I'll equal it twelve ounces at a time. curls <laughs> yeah on, on the beach yeah. in Florida
1: yeah 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 just wait i'm gonna get you out here when it's snowing and i'm gonna make you shovel my driveway
0: well you so, caught me out there once with a big scum but fortunately but fortunately i was a half an hour away so yeah that was a that was a convenient excuse love those convenient excuses well, I think it
1: was a good show. I always appreciate talking. And, and again, this was great to uh, to have one of our listeners on board and, and ask us and talk about an issue that she found very interesting, even in her industry of uh, medical insurance. So that's awesome. And I know that we're going to be doing it again. So with that, my friend, I will leave you with the last words.
0: Okay. To all our listeners. Please, stay safe in your personal life. We're not out of the woods with this virus yet. So wear your mask whenever you're out. Wash your hands frequently. Pay attention to the protocols. Please, let's stop the spread of this virus. And if you are going to fly, we've been looking at the accident rate, and it's starting to climb. And there's no way to know at this point in time if they're climbing because of just increased flying or it's climbing because of pilots thinking that they could just go back in the cockpit and pick up where they left off, which we know you can't do. So if you're going to go flying and you haven't flown since last year when this pandemic when the pandemic hit, then please fly with somebody else. Don't just fly alone. Get somebody else that's been flying, and fly an hour with them, a, a few trips around the the to get those skills back into uh, muscle memory. And do a very good pre-flight there's more and more information coming out about pre-flights and pre-flights after the airplane has been in maintenance greg and i are both working an issue that's involving a pre-flight after maintenance some of the problems that came out of that so please fly safe and stay safe in your own life and thank you for listening to listen to more episodes of the show go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at pama.org and wherever you
1: find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia
0: and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.